Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring hosts Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here is Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 18, being recorded on Tuesday, March 15th, 2016. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as always, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Good evening, Scott. Hey, Jason. Happy episode 18. We have another first for our Jason and Scott show. Indeed we do. The It's the first time where I'm on the road and you are at home. This never happens to us. It has not yet, but I will tell you that my wife is very grateful to have uh, uh, finally had this occurrence. Although she's wondering, who is this strange guy wandering around the house? Hugging the baby. <laughs> that may, in fact, be true. As a reminder, you're in Florida for the Bronto Conference, right? Yeah. I'm here in sunny Miami Beach overlooking the ocean right now. Uh, it's very p- picturesque. It's actually dark while we're recording this, but pretend. Uh, and it's very warm here. I did not pack appropriately. It was 60 in North Carolina, and it's like 90 here in Miami, so I need to uh, put on my shorts. The... Uh, so I'm here at the Bronto Trade Show. They're an email marketing company, as you know, and a big partner of ours and good friends of uh, Channel Advisor in North Carolina. They're located just down the street from us, and they were acquired by NetSuite last year. So it's kind of a NetSuite Bronto show, and I am giving a talk tomorrow on the on-demand economy and how it's going to impact e-commerce. And not to spoil tomorrow, but is it going to have an impact on e-commerce? It is. Uh, I'm a little nervous. It's the first time I've given this talk, so we'll have to kind of see how it plays. So. Um, I definitely think that it's going to have a big impact on e-commerce. And some of the news we saw this week is actually pretty topical. We'll cover it at the end of the show. So definitely stick around, listeners. That's what we call a teaser. And it's going to be you know pretty exciting here at the end of the show. So stick around and we'll talk about it. I'm already on pins and needles myself. Yeah, and you know we're 18 weeks into this, and one company uh, has so much going on that we can always count on them for at least three or four news items. And that company is Amazon, and this week was no uh, different at all. Um, one of the things, a quick one I saw was uh, they there was a report out of their fulfillment centers where they now show, and, and I think what happened is a reporter, um, you know, Amazon has that thing where you can go on these tours and. They're typically done in the spring is kind of a cycle of them. And I think people are going on these tours and finding interesting little tidbits. And I believe this was a reporter was was walking through a fulfillment center. And instead of writing about all the cool robotics and automation, they saw on one of the screens kind of a public shaming kind of a thing. So uh, like like any high-tech environment now, they have flat-screen TVs on the walls. And my understanding is they have examples on there that say things like, you know, Joe used to work at Amazon and he shoplifted a GoPro and he is no longer here kind of a thing. Did you see that article? I did. I felt like they may have borrowed that idea from the Romans. Yeah. They uh, I get, they do stop short of uh, mounting your head on a pole, uh, a la Game of Thrones, but uh, it is kind of a public shaming kind of a thing. And, you know, they probably have data. Knowing Amazon, there's probably some data where they tested eight different things in different fulfillment centers, and this one had the most impact or something. I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's there's some data element behind this. Yeah, that article do, did encourage me to put a challenge out there for the listeners. So the, the shoplifting angle reminded me of a very funny story from a couple of years ago of a, a fulfillment center employee that stole the items but did not take them out of the fulfillment center. 
he built his own man cave inside of the fulfillment center. Nice. Yeah, where he would uh, loiter. And apparently he had like working big screen TVs and very comfortable setup. You can imagine with the metrics in those fulfillment centers, he probably wasn't able to get away with it for very long. But so I tried to find the article to talk about tonight and I, I could not find it on the web. So potentially my brain has fabricated this whole story. But if anyone knows what I'm talking about and can find a pointer, I would uh, appreciate seeing it. Have you ever worked at a fulfillment center? I have not worked at a okay. fulfillment center. I do have family members that work at an Amazon fulfillment center. I was thinking maybe it was autobiographical. That's why you can find it in writing. Got you. Uh, I would not put it past my family members to be doing it, but I, I don't think, I think it would be very hard to get away with today. I think that it may have been a little bit looser in the, the distant past. Another one I saw that was really interesting. Uh, this is kind of a bit of a longer form piece. So if, if you only digest content in Twitter size uh, little chunks, this is probably not a good one for you. Uh, but it was from this blog I really enjoy called Strategery, um, and which is kind of a riff on the George Bush Strategery. Uh, and uh, this is a blogger. I think he's out of the UK and he just he goes over various internet companies, uh, and I believe he worked at Microsoft and Google, or maybe it's Twitter. He worked at a couple of high tech companies, and he does a really good job of kind of taking a thirty thousand foot view of different tech companies' strategies and and where they they're going with them. Um, as you and I have talked a lot about on the show, he does a really good job of kind of explaining, you know, why does Amazon Web Services exist? Why did Amazon come up with it? And he threads the needle into the third party marketplace. And then he kind of lands the plane, uh, uh, pun intended, on logistics and delivery. Uh, and he's very – I am I believe pretty strongly Amazon will ultimately get into individual package delivery, if not B2B, so helping retailers uh, – more like B2C, I mean. So helping retailers deliver packages, I do think that ultimately Amazon offers a consumer kind of a package offering uh, a la you know, the same reasons they opened up AWS. It's kind of super long to go into here on the show, but I thought uh, folks may be interested in reading that. It's a really good piece if you haven't kind of thought about how Amazon does this and understood that playbook. And I think everyone in retail should read it because it's a very different way of thinking compared to the traditional retail world. Absolutely. And we'll definitely post a link. An interesting side note, what spawned that particular article is yesterday is the 10-year anniversary of Amazon Web Services. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of people, when I talk to people in kind of omni-channel retail, they really, it, it's so such a foreign concept, this whole idea. And if you, you know, good examples, look at Walmart. So for the longest time, Walmart's had invested, you know, billions of dollars into logistics and compute infrastructure, but it's viewed as highly proprietary, right? Because they view it as a competitive advantage. So it's, it's such a weird 180 degree view for Amazon to say, uh, you know, we're investing all this for one day of the year, essentially Cyber Monday, and you know, one period of the time. Uh, uh, how can we get? You know, how can we monetize it in off-peak times? Is kind of I think how they were thinking about it, uh, and thus I think the first service was S3, uh, and then they they kind of combined them all into AWS. Uh, and what's interesting is they do talk a little bit about, it's very hard I found to find things about how Amazon works internally. Uh, and there is a little nugget in there about how Amazon kind of self-organizes things uh, into little kind of execution units that are pretty independent so that they can go do experimental things like the Echo and the Fire Phone. And some of those things fail and some don't. But because they're these little independent pizza teams, you know, they're, they have a fair amount of autonomy. For listeners that might not be familiar with the pizza reference, like that was a... Uh a pretty simple metaphor that they 
They try not to have any projects that require a team so large that they couldn't be fed by two pizzas, right? So they called that the two pizza team. Yeah, and that's uh, I guess using the Scott, the Jason and Scott show. That's uh, that's like three people. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> assuming that you're also going to do a Starbucks run on the way home from the pizza place. Yeah, yeah, because we love us some pizza on the Jason and Scott show. Indeed, we do. It, that did uh, I, I did notice related to Amazon Web Services two tiny tidbits this week. I read an article that Dropbox, which has been a very successful service and is is hosted on Amazon Web Services. They use that for all the file storage that they've actually made the decision to start building their own storage infrastructure and they're moving off of Amazon Web Services and their their goal is to be 90% native and only 10% on uh, AWS, which I just I, that struck me as slightly odd because it feels a little bit like the trend is that 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 storage is commodified and you know outsources that to someone that does it really well and that that didn't need to be necessarily a a competitive advantage for a company like Dropbox but I guess they they do see some some cost or other opportunity in building their own solution. Yeah, I read two articles on that and I was puzzled too and none of the articles ever explained why. It was interesting. They were all about wow, it was so hard and expensive and we had to do all this stuff. We had to buy all this storage and we were so reliant on it. And I was kind of like, well, what, what's yeah. the point? They, they never really, there was never any kind of like, oh, and we'll save a bazillion dollars or we now control our destiny or we worried about Amazon. There was no rationale for why they did it. It didn't make sense to me. No, I, I that was exactly my takeaway. And then a little more favorable, Walmart did something interesting uh, this month. They open sourced a piece of software that they developed called OneOps. And they actually acquired this company, Tasty Labs, that had a product called OneOps three years ago. And they've they've used it to build their entire e-commerce infrastructure. And then they surprised everyone this month by open sourcing it. And essentially what it is, is it's an architecture for developing and deploying services-based apps on um, these cloud-based hosting tools but it's universal. So you write your code once and you can deploy your code onto Azure and onto Amazon Web Services and onto Rackspace and onto some other open source frameworks and even distribute your app across all of them. Mm. I thought that was pretty interesting because Walmart does host most of their infrastructure internally, but they, they built it on this platform that would let them very elastically extend their capacity to Amazon or Microsoft or, or anyone else they could get the best deal from. And that, that seemed kind of cool. That is cool. And it's very non-traditional for them to open source that. So kudos to them on that. Exactly. One, one thing I saw uh, that I was pretty excited about in the Amazon world is you and I are big, uh, you know, very excited about augmented reality and virtual reality. In fact, shameless plug, you're giving a talk about this at the upcoming shop talk. The, um, Amazon has, there was a patent about three months ago that was kind of like for an all room augmented reality system that, that Amazon filed and it didn't require eyewear at all or a headset. Uh, and then recently there's been a couple of people that have, uh, surfaced there that are working at Amazon and have kind of put AR VR in their title, uh, and then, uh, some job openings. So it looks like the field is widening for this. So we have the usual suspects of Oculus, Sony, Samsung, HTC, 
Um, there's a couple others in there. And then now it looks like Amazon's in the game. Oh, and Google, uh, we've talked about that on the podcast where they, they have the cardboard. It seems like they're getting more serious about what they're doing. I even saw an article that said uh, Google will probably announce something and have some demo at their I.O. conference, which I believe is in the spring. So it's going to be very interesting, and this is going to be you know, all these guys uh, that I've seen. One of the areas, aside from gaming and media, is retail. They they're all looking at retail as an area and have various demos. So you know, obviously, when you think Amazon, you think retail. So I I imagine they could go at that as one of their top priorities early on, and it's going to be interesting if they are working on AR VR to see what what kind of technology it is. Is it really going to be without a headset, and what they do to innovate in the retail world. No, for sure. Uh, it's going to be very interesting. Uh, full disclosure on the Shop Talk talk, I may be overly competitive because they, they had like three three topics that they were interested in exploring with me, and I knew one of them would really appeal to you, so I grabbed that one. Oh, thanks. Appreciate that, man. It's the kind of guy I am. <laughs> Did you see the Business Insider article about Amazon suits? Yeah, and um, this is uh, just to refresh, folks. So it, there was a little kerfuffle uh, where Women's Day, Wearly, Women's Day Weekly said that they had heard there was going to be some private label Amazon apparel. And then like a week later, it was on the scenes. And one of the items that was initially only available in Canada was men's suits. They're made in Canada. And they were initially only available to buyers in Canada. They're now available uh, in uh, all of North America, as I understand it. I have not bought one, but some uh, someone at Business Insider tried one on and actually gave it pretty good reviews. The The quality was good. They liked the fact that it was made in Canada. Uh, I don't buy a lot of suits, so I, I couldn't tell you if that's a plus or minus. Uh, and they thought the fit and finish was was really good, and the price was extremely competitive. Uh, I think to kind of like a men's warehouse kind of a, a level of a suit. Again, I'm not a big suit buyer. You you probably wear more suits than I do. Well, I try to avoid them as well. I think they compared it to a J. Crew product. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And what is interesting there there is a pure play e commerce company that that sells made to order Canadian suits called Indokino. So I wonder like there there appears to be a little. Uh, cottage industry of uh, Canadian tailors importing into the U.S. Yeah, and uh, those guys actually just announced uh, a round of over $30 million. So I guess the, the Amazon competition isn't hurting them for at least raising capital. No, and we may talk about that later, but obviously big big difference is the custom suit versus the you know, made-to-order suit versus the off-the-rack suits that, that Amazon is talking about. I will tell you, I went back because we talked about Amazon's private label closed a couple of podcasts ago. And, um, you know, we identified those seven brands. I actually got a chance to go shop those brands a little more closely on Amazon. And I was somewhat surprised. Um, the product detail pages for almost all the products totally suck, hmm. which is not typical for Amazon. Most of the product content for their private label products, like the Amazon Basics or the Amazon Elements are kind of, um, they follow best practices and we use them a lot as examples of, you know, how to populate your product detail pages on Amazon. And most of these apparel brands, they, they had like huge flaws. Like, um, if they sold a shirt in multiple sizes, one of the things you do on the Amazon platform is, you you designate those different sizes as a variant. So when you're looking at one product detail page, you can see that that product is available in these other sizes, and you can select a different size. And the the 
of the 2,000 SKUs that they have on the site right now, most of them don't have variants. Like they have at most one picture. They they don't have good selling copy. They don't have a lot of the stuff that you would normally expect of Amazon. And it um it it frankly made me wonder if uh, they they got caught like really early in the deployment and they really weren't ready for it to be publicly facing yet. Yeah, I've actually seen that when they have subsidiaries that um, are either through M&A or that they've worked with um, and they list on Amazon after being on some other site. It, it usually goes to that life cycle. So I wonder if this thing is set up as some kind of a sub and they were just having them kind of get it on the site quickly and, and they got caught, like you said. Yep, that that's kind of how it felt to me. So like Zappos will occasionally list some shoes over on Amazon. And if you, you know, in the early days, it looked like you're, you could tell who it was because it was so ter- terrible. It was just kind of, it was very unzappos like. Another quick one I saw is another patent came out uh, from Amazon. And this one, and I, I feel like I've seen something around this. Uh, and we may even talked about it. This one was around using selfies for payments. Um, so, you know, you look at the phone and you smile and the the device recognizes your face using several different proof points to, to identify kind of like a fingerprint from your face. I know Google is doing a payment version of that where you kind of loudly say in the store, you yell, Google, pay for this shirt. And, uh, you know, it registers your voice and pays for things. So this is more of a selfie payment. Yeah, I, I, I saw that as well. And it's interesting Um I think both Visa and Intel also have some intellectual property in that space. Um, so it feels like a lot of people are tackling it. But the the one I saw that made a big splash about it, which made it surprising that Amazon did it, is Alibaba. That's right, yeah. So, I mean, Jack Ma literally, like, demoed it at an event. And so, it, admittedly, like, for Amazon, we just saw a patent filing. So they didn't necessarily try to make any hay over it. But the optics of doing something after Alibaba are is probably not what Jeff Bezos is shooting for. Yeah, and you know, just to our listeners, um, the patent pipeline is out of your control. So they could have been working on it two years ago, and it just made it through the pipeline. And you know, But you're right, optically, it looks like it came out after. Exactly. Um, one other uh, interesting one that, that I saw is there's a logistics expert. And now everyone on Wall Street is talking to these logistics experts because they're fascinated with this whole theory about Amazon doing logistics networks. Um, and we do our own survey of Amazon fulfillment centers at Channel Advisor. Uh, and we've just been tracking the Amazon Prime Now centers as they've launched cities. Uh, one surprising new kind of uh, little data point from uh, one of these experts was that they've identified 50 Amazon Prime Now centers, and they're only live in 25 cities. So my reading of the lines on that is it feels like Amazon could launch another 25 cities pretty quickly here in the short term. Um, and I thought that was pretty interesting. Uh, also, he had um, some really interesting details around how the new airplane model works. So Amazon leased six airplanes as a test, and now they, they've done 20 um, from very larger tests. And what they're using them for is they're building their own hub-and-spoke kind of a network um, using the planes to kind of go between fulfillment centers. So if if you're in Chicago and you want something and it's in Kentucky, uh, that it, it could fly to you. There's this kind of products come in from – fulfillment centers at night and then they go back out the next day, just like kind of Memphis uh, and Louisville work for UPS. So, um, so it, it's going to cut down on the, the air delivery they have to use and make everything kind of what logistics people would say is kind of zone one because they can kind of like hop it themselves and then use ground kind of level delivery. 
Um, that may be in a little in the weeds for, for our listeners, but it's, you know, if you are interested in that stuff, um, let me know and I, I can get you a copy of the slides from that. I thought it was a really good presentation or we'll link it to it on the, the website. Very cool. We cover a lot of Amazon news on this show. And, uh, you know, I think rightfully we talk about how in some cases their lead over the rest of retail is understated and retailers don't necessarily fully appreciate how fast Amazon is really running. So I, I had an interesting conversation with some colleagues this week about the opposite side of that, that Amazon also, of course, isn't perfect. And so we, we were having kind of a fun conversation highlighting some of the things that we thought were misses at Amazon or, or maybe areas for improvement. And I was curious if you had spent any cycles thinking of things you might not admire about Amazon. Yeah, let, let me give you kind of my top three or four. Um, the latest one is I get a lot of packages at work and historically those have come from UPS and it's a great experience. You know, the driver comes in, drops it off at the reception area and you know, I'm alerted that there's a package. Uh, well, recently, I would say more than half of my packages are now coming USPS. And the problem is the USPS delivery people are, um, they don't have the same service level as the UPS people. So they just, uh, they will either just put a notice in a little mailbox thing or, and then we have to go to the post office to get it. Or they, they certainly will not bring it to the reception area, which is literally, you know, like, 80 feet away from the door. So, so that's been pretty painful. So that's number one. Um, number two is, you know, Amazon on the seller side, we work real close with Amazon and for a lot of items, they collect insane amounts of data. And one thing that always frustrates me is when they get all this data and then it doesn't show up on the front end of the site, because I just feel like this, the front end of the site could be so much better. Uh, and this shows up in a couple of categories just to throw out there. Um, one, for example, is team sports. So if you're going to sell a baseball bat on Amazon, you have to give all this data about, you know, and I don't know if you've bought a baseball bat lately, um, but, you know, they have uh, what's considered the drop or the pitch of the bat, the length, the weight, and all these kinds of elements. And those are all, those and more data elements are required by Amazon. But then you go to the front of the site and it's just got a brand filter. Uh, if, you, if you go to, you know, if you go to really good vertically oriented team sports sites, they're going to have you know, really good search capabilities and filtered nav around, okay, I need a 23-inch drop five and here's the brands that have that. And, you know, they, uh, they they just have really good vertical buyer experiences that are very data-driven. And Amazon has all that data. They just don't seem to be able to kind of push it down into a lot of categories. So the two that I, I know the most about are team sports and then parts and accessories. Um, and I think that's an opportunity. You know, when, when retailers always ask me, I talk a lot about Amazon, the number one question I get is, where where can I compete with Amazon? And I think those are areas where you can actually do a better job. And the proof point I always give is Zappos. You know, Zappos use this to their advantage to make a better shoe buying experience. Uh, and then the last one I'll say, um, I'm on the record of saying that I think the Amazon Echo, uh, which for those of you that don't know, is this Bluetooth um, uh, speaker that you speak to that has really good voice recognition. And now there's a whole family of devices around it. Uh, it has this really cool extensibility model uh, you know, so for your your phones, we have apps, and for chat, you have bots. For Echo, you have skills. Uh, everyone always talks about the Napoleon Dynamite, you know, mad skills kind of thing. Um, so Echo is extensible through these skills, and the way you get to them is a little counterintuitive. You go. 
there's an app that you install on your phone when you first deploy um, Alexa uh, on Echo. When you first deploy your Echo, the voice assistant is called Alexa, so it gets a little confusing. You install an app for your Echo called the Alexa app, uh, which is confusing. And in the Alexa app, there's some really cool stuff. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that's where the skills live. So that's where the little app store is. And it is by far the worst app store experience you'll ever uh, see. There's literally a search bar and one or two on the front page. Um, it's not really clear if they're there alphabetically or recommended. And then there's 37 pages of skills. So there's there's literally no taxonomy. There's no filtering. There's no anything there. Um, so it's like one of those interesting areas where you can kind of catch Amazon not being very Amazon-ish, that something has really exploded on them and they're pretty far behind on making it awesome. <laughs> but Scott, the search results are at least personalized. So my page 34 will be totally different than your page 34. <laughs> <laughs> that is funny. And you you have to imagine that those are the kind of things that are clearly on a product manager's backlog and that with only the two pizza team, they just didn't have the extra developer they, they needed to implement some filters. Yeah. Or the pizza. My gripe, my biggest one is around Prime Now, which you know we've talked about. I think is a great service, very smart. Another big competitive advantage that has probably scaled more than most people realize. But so now that that's become an important part of my shopping experience, it's annoying that Prime Now isn't integrated into the Amazon website shopping experience. Very often, I'll find myself looking at a product detail page on Amazon, and I'll be deciding. Do I want to Prime now that and get it today, or you know, is it good enough to get it in two days with regular Prime shipping? And there's no way on the website to turn on a filter or have any visibility to, to whether an item is available in Prime now or not. So I have to leave the website, go to my phone, launch the Amazon app, and do the same search and try to find the same thing. And that just does not feel very customer-centric today. And to your point, Amazon obviously has all the data to, to expose that. And relatedly, they just don't expose enough product information to make purchase decisions on Prime Now. So Prime Now, at the moment, seems clearly focused at helping you get goods you already know you want. But Amazon delivers from some other stores besides Amazon. They deliver from Plum Market, which is like an upscale grocery store, from MyFit Foods, which is a prepackaged health food company, and from Sprinkles uh, Cupcakes, which is a prepackaged not health food company. For example, MyFitFoods sell a bunch of prepackaged foods, and Amazon doesn't give you any information about like the nutrition information of any of those meals. So again, you have to go to their website, look up the product, look up the nutrition, and then go back to Amazon Prime Now app and order it. And that just, again, seems silly in the digital age. My biggest gripe with Amazon is that lack of integration between Prime Now and Core Amazon experience. But uh, other complaints that I hear are um, around deliveries and the edge cases on deliveries. A big one is Amazon has a very good user interface for customer service if you have a problem with an order. Say you ordered three of something and you only get two, or you one of them is damaged in shipping or not packed well, or, or you get something you didn't order. There's a nice GUI to select that reason, return something, and, and it's all managed very efficiently. 
But there's one edge case that Amazon doesn't make very easy, and that's the case that Amazon says they delivered the box to you and the whole box never shows up. So either the delivery guy lost it or delivered it to the wrong uh, address or whatever the case is, there's no GUI to say, my package didn't arrive. And you actually have to go through a, a litany of customer service menus to find a way to report it. And they turn off the button for three days after they mark a package delivered. So they literally tell you, if we say we delivered it and um, we didn't deliver it, you have to wait three days because even though we said we delivered it, that might really mean that we're going to deliver it anytime in the next three days, mm. which feels like overall they have such a big brand promise around the reliability and speed of their deliveries. That just seems like a silly edge case to to get wrong and, and erode confidence in. And then the one I hear from others more than I might have expected is there are a lot of people that don't have the same degree of confidence in the private delivery services that Amazon's using. So either the employees they hire for Prime Now or the employees they hire to do their own same-day or next-day deliveries here in Chicago, you, you get a lot of complaints that you know when they delivered through UPS, the UPS guy knows the code to my door, and he seems trustworthy, and they instill a sense of confidence, but that these private Amazon drivers are often showing up in you know, rickety cars that don't look super safe and they, you know, they don't know how to get into to the buildings. And so very often they're calling people at 10 o'clock at night at night when they finish their deliveries, asking them to open the door and stuff like that. And and so it is interesting in their drive to take as much cost out of the last mile delivery as possible. It does appear that they're losing some uh, customer experience cachet around using those less uh, reputable drivers. Yeah. One, as you're speaking, one that I've gotten a lot of negative feedback from folks. Have you ever tried Amazon Pantry, which is the um, – I forget the economics. It's something like 7 or $8, and you fill up this box with heavy stuff, and uh, they'll deliver it for like this one set price, and it's like five days. So it's it's kind of like their answer to Costco in a way or, or um, you know, the box. Have you ever used box to that app that's kind of like a wholesale kind of a model? Um and the, what they do with the pantry though that's interesting is you have this little box that you fill up. And um, so some people have told me they they hate spending – it's a little bit of a game to fill the box. And they spend like this – they feel like they spend all this extra money to fill the box and get stuff they don't need is one feedback. Then other people get really frustrated because what they need just tips over into the second box and it adds another $8 fee. So um, getting some interesting feedback on that one too. It's actually like six bucks, five ninety nine. When you add items to your cart that are pantry items, and then say you haven't filled the pantry box, but you you want to buy the other items in your cart, there there's not a convenient way to say I want to buy all the non pantry items and just leave the pantry items in my cart until I fill it up later. Hmm. So there feel like a couple rough edges around where some of these products overlap with each other. Yeah. Uh, one thing I hope you're sitting down, one thing that may surprise you back to your, your kind of prime now, you know, being on the same page on the site, uh, eBay actually got to a point where they did a really good job at this. So, uh, this is about four years ago. They had, um, they had an Amazon catalog so you could go and find a toy, for example, and they had eBay now, and they had a in-store kind of a pickup integration. So, you, so, um, and I know because it was live with Toys R Us, uh, and it was actually pretty interesting. You could go to one product page, and you could say, "I want it shipped in X days," or "I want to go buy it in the store," or "I'd like it delivered." And it was a really neat kind of way they had 
they had put that together as kind of a tabbed interface where you could kind of, I kind of envisioned it as like little concentric rings where, you know, as it got closer to you, then, then you would pay more, but it was pretty clear that there was kind of three ways to get it delivered. So, um, interesting. One of those few areas where eBay kind of was, was, uh, ahead of Amazon and they're thinking there. Well, yeah, that frankly isn't surprising to me that, and obviously, you know, Jet and some other folks have put a lot of cycles into figuring out how to, how to make some of those more complicated fulfillment cases easier to use with varying success. So good opportunity for Amazon. I know Jeff Bezos is a listener to the podcast, so I imagine he fired off six emails with a question mark in them right now, and we can probably expect uh, some new experiences in the next few weeks. Yeah, by episode 19, I would really like the Echo Skills experience fixed, please, Jeff. <laughs> we'll update on that next week. Is there any non-Amazon news in the world of commerce this week? There is. We're kind of we've been talking a lot about some of the um, the quarterly earnings reports. The uh, a lot of the stuff's from Q4 still. We're still kind of in that earnings season. Some some retailers because of seasonality they tag in January in there, uh, and I don't know them all by heart. Who does and who doesn't? But one I saw this week that I thought you'd be interested in was Ulta. Um, full disclosure: This is a Channel Advisor customer, and um, uh, we work real closely with them. And what was interesting is what caught my attention is there's a bunch of upgrades and in retail, we have not seen a bunch of analysts kind of say strong buy and really recommend this, this company. Uh, so what's happening here is, well, first of all, let's kind of go through the results. Uh, they, let's see, um, same store sales were up 10.4%, which was a slight deceleration. Um, but you know, I think you and I have talked about retail sales are growing low single digits. So anyone that can have brick and mortar, same store sales, nor in double digits, that's, that's a huge win. Um, so that, that was positive. And then on e-commerce, they were up 44% year over year, which was, was impressive as well. It was also a slight deceleration, I think like 200 basis points. So Mm -hmm. from 46% to 44, but it's kind of a high class problem to have your, your physical store growing, you know, 10% and then your e-commerce growing 44 so those results were really positive. But then what I think got people really excited was they also kind of pounded the table and said, hey, going forward, we see same-store sales in this range of 8 to 10%. And historically, they had been kind of conservative at 6 to 8 So they, they, took, they took their um, omni-channel kind of growth rate up pretty materially. Uh, and then they also said, we're so bought into this model, we're going to add another 100 stores this year, which are you know in the – uh, in the foreseeable future. So, so everyone, um, very contrary to what we heard out of the rest of retail, uh, especially like the apparel folks, closing stores, investing in e-commerce, we're behind. It's not growing fast enough. You talked about the gap last week, uh, and some of those, those kinds of trends. Um, I'm not a, a, a personal care slash makeup guru, but it seems to be, if I was a, a betting person that this is, um, Millennials uh, will go to malls for this is kind of what I'm I'm hearing from the data. It's an interesting strategy, right? And in any investment scenario, you talk about buy low, sell high. In a market where a bunch of retailers are forced to close stores and break leases and do all kinds of dramatic things, there's a lot of cost-effective real estate to be had. And so bucking the trend and being in a position to invest in new stores at this market, you can cut much better leases and you can grab real estate. And presumably, you know, they're targeting 
the places where consumers are moving to, not the places where consumers are moving away. And they're, they're targeting what we call the A malls. Potentially it's a smart strategy to kind of do a land grab at a time when their direct competitors like Sephora might, you know, not be in a position to grab those same leases. And so it's a clever way to leverage your extra growth that you're getting in the marketplace. Yeah. And then the other thing I saw that was interesting is the U.S. Department of Commerce released February sales. The, you know, unfortunately these, these government bodies that release these things are always doing it pretty kind of late in the cycle. So here we are, you know, kind of mid past mid mid March and we're just getting some February data. Uh, but they, they said that, uh, First of all, they went and they're looking at retail sales. They actually downgraded January. So, so another thing these government folks will do is they, they get some kind of late data and they'll go revise. So they revised January down and then um, February was also kind of slow. Um, now, the, the thing about that is that data is what feeds into GDP and it includes a lot of non what you and I would call retail. So I think some restaurant and oil and gas and stuff's in there. So then RF comes along and they, they peel that out and they kind of have their own retail sales number. Um, and I believe that one came in low, low single digits. So kind of in the two, 3% kind of a range. So just kind of as a baseline for people, seems like the, the old Jason and Scott kind of steady two to 3% for offline, 15% for e-commerce is, is kind of what we're seeing in the first quarter of 2016. In my mind, I look at that and say, that's flat retail growth. You take gasoline, which, which is part of retail sales out and it's, it's in that 2% growth range. So, you know, ex- exactly as, as we've, we've been describing. And one exciting thing I wanted to talk to you about was um, this was a, I think this was leaked by someone on Wall Street. So what, what Wall Street folks do is they pay pretty close attention to job listings. And one of the retail analysts was looking through the target job listings and found this kind of interesting set of job listings. I think there's four or five, mostly on the engineering side. And they specifically say in their you know this kind of uh, very cloak and dagger that that Target is starting a new initiative called Goldfish, and then uh, they really don't tell you much more about Goldfish. There are two little tidbits from the job postings I saw that were interesting, and I'll just throw those into here. Um, uh, one is uh, they talk about one of the engineers for the platform team, and they'll say it says you're responsible for implementing a multi-tenant e-commerce platform. So that's you know interesting. You and I can talk about what that is. That's going to serve millions of customers. So this is not you know that signal there is this is not just going to be a little sidebar thing. Um, and you have to make sure it's scalable, robust, and easy to use. The second one I saw was interesting. I think this was from a product manager. And it had a blurb that said, you must have a deep understanding of the fundamentals of retail marketplaces. And that made my radar uh, go <laughs> way up. Uh, social commerce. Uh, so I, I liked that. And influencer networks. Um, and it says, this blend of skills is super rare. So I felt really good about that too. So if you don't have all these in your past, you have to show a strong ability to quickly learn. So I thought it was interesting. So i just kind of say those again. So we know multi-tenant e-commerce platform, millions of consumers, retail marketplaces, social commerce, and influencer networks. Um, what do you think an influencer network is? Is that like uh, LinkedIn and um, like clout kind of things? Is that kind of what you think of when you think influencer networks? I think of some sort of gamified social network. Yeah. And, you know, what made me... What I thought about when I read that was Cartwheel, um, and you know more about it than I do, so uh, why don't you fill the listeners in on, on Cartwheel? Specifically, Cartwheel is a very successful program that Target already runs. That is a mobile app uh, that gives you in-store deals, and the 
the original premise, which is still part of the program, is the more of your peers you get to take the deal with you, the better the deal gets. So it has this gamification element where the consumers are going to amplify the the deal and spread it organically or virally uh, in order to get a better price for themselves. And that whole cartwheel system is now, in my mind, the most successful retail mobile app out there. It has more active users and it's influenced more of Target's revenue than than really any other mobile app program I'm aware of for a retailer. Do you feel like a lot of consumers do the gamification piece or is it just kind of replacing the circular? So they don't break data down on that. And to be honest, my sense is that the gamification isn't as strong a component as originally anticipated. Its prominence in the user interface has kind of eroded a little bit as they've continued to evolve the app. And just watching people's use case, Cartwheel has really replaced that physical circular for a lot of consumers. And it, it, just, it just isn't obvious to me that the overwhelming majority of, of consumers are using the, the gamification feature. Got it. So I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to say I think Goldfish is a marketplace because when you look at the top kind of 10 websites, Target and JCPenney are the two that really don't have a marketplace at this point. So I think they need a marketplace. It will help with selection, but it's going to have some kind of an angle like the social and the, the gamification. So I think I think they view there's going to be a little bit of an angle there. Um, and then the multi-tenant commerce thing, almost you could read that and almost say maybe they're going to create a competing platform to like a Shopify, big commerce, or some of the SaaS-based you know, kind of a things. I don't think they would, large retailers would work for them kind of like the old Amazon hosting borders kind of a thing. So if they did that, it would have to be small businesses. So I don't know. It's, it's really kind of perplexing and going to be really fascinating to kind of see what comes out of this. What, what's, uh, what's the retail geek thing? Yeah. So it's a fun thing to speculate on. And I have to start with a a short caveat, I do work with Target, but I haven't been read in on Goldfish at all. I've never spoken with a gentleman that's responsible for the program, so I have zero inside information on this whatsoever. I'm guessing as, exactly as cold as you are, but my theory is that you're pretty close. My theory is that there that it is a marketplace, but that it's a little different execution of, of a marketplace from anything that we've seen out there. I, I think it's going to be closer to a an Etsy-style marketplace for very small sellers, potentially sellers of, of handcrafted goods or goods that appeal to that core target guest, which is kind of a, a high-style value shopper. And I think the unique spin is, whereas Etsy exclusively lets its sellers sell on its platform, I think they're also going to give the sellers their own private e-commerce sites with their own URLs. So uh, you upload your inventory into the Target Marketplace. Target helps enable you to have your own destination on the web. You sell, you build your own uh, market, you build your own email list. You you do all the, the smart things that an entrepreneur would do. And as a bonus, we'll also expose your goods to all the Target traffic and help you sell a lot more by by selling your goods on an aggregated target marketplace. And my theory is that they're doing that to give sellers a compelling reason to to adopt the target marketplace in addition to or instead of many of the other marketplaces that are out there. And I'm 
basing this all on some really, really thin evidence. Target has a really smart program about driving innovation at Target. They actually hire dedicated innovation employees. You know, pros and cons to this approach, you can kind of think of them as as ivory tower employees that are off to the side and don't have mainline responsibilities. But they originally hired this guy, Alan Wiseman, and bought his company, Shop Igniter, and said, we just want you to come up with some cool ideas. And one of those cool ideas was Cartwheel. So they, you know, they bought a small company. He wasn't encumbered by any of Target's operational stuff, and he helped them launch this very successful concept, which is now a core part of Target's model. And so Goldfish is the brainchild of another one of these innovation guys, and his name is Wes Stringfellow. And uh, Wes has a great e-commerce background. Uh, he's formerly a product manager at Big Commerce, which, as many listeners may know, is a multi-tenant e-commerce platform for small businesses. And they've had pretty significant management changes lately. And uh, you know, a number of folks would say they've become much more expensive and less friendly to the small businesses. So it's entirely possible that a former employee would say, "Hey, there's some." some white space and the, the low end of multi-tenant e-commerce hosting. And uh, Wes has a, a, a PayPal background. So when you look at those job listings and they say marketplace expertise, influencer network expertise, and multi-tenant commerce expertise, it's pretty easy to imagine some kind of marketplace for small businesses that enables them to have their own address in addition to selling in the target ecosystem. Yeah, the, when you were talking about Etsy, I was reminded they were doing a test. I think it was with one of the grocery folks. Maybe it was, I think it was Whole Foods, where they were actually putting kind of a an Etsy product kiosk in the store. So I think I think Etsy's identified. There's definitely you know some demographic where they would love to put that type of product in front of folks. So that could be another angle that you know. Until then, it didn't make sense for this to be inside of Target. You know what, what's the point? Um, but the store thing could be cool if if this was popular. That would be a really nice outlet, and, and no one's really connected that together, right? No one's kind of connected omni-channel and marketplaces such that. Uh, and I think there's some interesting innovation there you could do where you you take you know the most popular and maybe you even get pretty specific down to zip code level the most popular marketplace items. Let's pretend they were handmade, then you could have an area of the store that, that highlights those items so people could touch them, feel them, and, and that kind of thing. So I don't know if that's the direction, but that, that that's interesting to me because it does make more sense for Target with their huge store infrastructure to be looking at something like that. Exactly. And, and you know, one thing Target doesn't get enough credit for is they've really improved their logistics quite a bit in the last year or so. And so they're, they're doing a lot of fulfillment from stores. They've really beefed up that. Um, and so you, you could imagine that both they, they can take some of those goods and have physical merchandising for those goods, which is, you know, potentially a big advantage versus a, in, in Etsy type offering. Um, but they also have, you know, these 1800 stores in convenient locations that a lot of uh, appealing shoppers go to every week. And you could actually use those both as delivery depots for these products, but also even lo- reverse logistics. You could imagine sellers dropping off goods at a Target store for fulfillment to uh, buyers. Yeah, I think Target's kind of the dark horse in this whole thing because when I talk to people in the industry, all they remember is a couple of the bad incidents, right? The, the When they replatformed and crashed, was that 13 or 12? And then you know, even this year when they had that Cyber Monday promotion, they had to gate that. And then when they've launched a couple of those brands, they've, they've had some outages. Um, 
so it seems like everyone kind of really substantially discounts them, but you you see the growth coming out. They were one of the top performers on e-commerce, uh, and then you see some of these kind of interesting things they're doing in, innovatively. So it, you know, I think people should keep a little bit of an eye and not just take the negatives. And when you take risks, bad things are going to happen. You know, the Amazon, you know, for every Echo, there's a Fire Phone. So it's I I you know commend them for taking these kind of risks that sometimes don't work and do backfire and and you know hopefully this goldfish thing is going to be pretty good. Yeah, absolutely. I'm looking forward to learning more. Okay, we're we're a little tight on time. One last thing that we talked about at the top of the show I wanted to hit on um, was I saw uh, this really interesting uh, article that brands are starting to subsidize Instacart deliveries. So, uh, this you and I have talked a lot about this kind of theme of brands going direct and wanting more influence and and whatnot over the e-commerce channel. And I thought this was really interesting because there's so many doubters about um, some of these on-demand, uh, especially these delivery models, the same-day delivery, where you know could could Instacart really do it for five dollars? And when you think about who has some margin to make this happen, the brands uh, you know are interesting, and they definitely have uh, a dog in the fight. So um, I thought that was interesting. Did you get a chance to see that article? I did, and I actually think it's even smarter than the benefits that were kind of stated in that article. I get a chance to work with a lot of consumer packaged goods companies, and for a bunch of them, one of the big fears that is happening in digital disruption is impulse purchases are going away. As you shop online and you build your Amazon uh, subscribe and save list or you build your regular shopping list at Fresh Direct or whatever, you no longer are standing in that line and seeing that gum before you, you check out. And even when you go to the physical store, when you're standing in line to pay, instead of staring at all those impulse purchase items, you are staring down at your mobile phone. There's a lot of nervous brand managers that they're losing the opportunity to drive impulse purchases as grocery shoppers are being more and more influenced by digital. And this is a perfect opportunity for some of those impulse brands to make that impulse offer right at the point of checkout. So you can imagine you know, that that pop-up that says, hey, this Instacart delivery is free if you want to add Doritos to your order is a perfect digital analogy to those those impulse items at the cash wrap in a, a physical store. Yeah, so this is a trend we'll definitely keep an eye on and keep reporting on. Yeah, I am looking forward to it. So, Scott, unfortunately, that's probably all the time we have for this week. As always, we really appreciate all the great feedback we're getting, and I, I hope people will keep it coming. So until next week, happy commercing. Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes and please leave a review. 